<laughs> everybody's like, <gasps> I just made everybody choke, didn't I? <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. We, we got this, y'all. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost. Um, it really is wonderful to get big chunks and, and as much as we can to let the scriptures, to let the word of God speak for itself. Um, so something that, uh, that I, I do seek uh, for us to do often. So, Okay. <clears throat> You guys ready? Let's read Matthew 26, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump in here at the uh, beginning of the chapter. Now it came, came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? 
he said to him, You said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than ten or more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you didn't seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's court, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then then they spat in his face, and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another saw him, another girl saw him, and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely, surely you also are one of them, for your your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Ooh. (laughs) 
a heavy chapter, huh? <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I don't want I don't want to lose sight of um, I don't want to lose sight of you. I don't want us to lose sight of you. In our um, marriages, as we deal with our families and our children, as we wrestle with work things, and, and how we could serve our community. I don't want, I don't want to lose sight of um, the profound depth with which you have loved us. And my, my heart's desire is that we would be continuing to move toward a people free from the tyranny of fear. And all that that means, Lord, would you breathe into us health and life by your Spirit this morning? Please do it. Pray that you would in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. 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 Guys, fear. <laughs> fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. In fact, probably one of the strongest motivators there is, is fear. And it governs and dictates much of what we do, even if we deny it. It's still there. <laughs> the fear of man, being afraid of what others think of us, or maybe what others will do to us, applies in our marriages and with our children and at work and in our other interpersonal relationships with others. It can be there and it can rule over us and put us in a place of bondage where we find ourselves doing things and saying things that we never imagined we'd do but we're gripped with fear. Not only that, but the fear of death binds us, holds us, restricts us from the freedom, from, from holding our lives, our bodies, and the things that we own, holding them with open hands. Because sometimes the reality is we don't own those things. Sometimes the things that we own actually own us, right? <laughs> They govern what we choose to do with our time and how we spend our money. They rule over us. And I think Jesus would have us to be free from the tyranny of fear. In fact, John, in First uh, John, John writes, Perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves torment. This fear of judgment... But Jesus has come, and as we watch him and we watch the circumstances around him in Matthew 26, I want you to be aware of, thinking about, cognizant of 
this attitude of fear that governs the lives of everyone else around him. And then I want you to see that he stands alone on the precipice of human history, free from the tyranny of fear to obey the will of his father, even when it costs him something that um, you and I, I, I don't think will we'll possibly ever fully understand. Verse 1 says this, Matthew 26, if you look with me again, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, all the stuff about uh, the end of the age, or the destruction of the temple, the, the last two chapters, the, uh, the information about his parousia, his presence, his coming again. It came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He'd been warning them on several occasions that he would be taken, he would be tried, he would be crucified and killed, and then he would be raised from the dead. And now he's giving them like the final timetable here. Guys, two days is the Passover. And there's so much incredible, so many incredible pictures here as we look back at the institution of the Passover, and that's something that I want to do more um, next week as we get a little bit further in the story here when we look at um, chapter 27. But uh, we'll, we'll talk more about the Passover and all that that means. But um, what I want you to understand right now is that Passover begins, the one day of Passover begins a week-long festival, a week-long feast called the Feast of, of uh, Unleavened Bread. Okay? Now, this actually combines, this one feast of unleavened bread combines three separate holy days or holy time periods on the Jewish calendar. Okay? It includes Passover itself, which then begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is week-long. It also includes the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? All of these happen at the same time. And whenever they speak of it, usually they speak of it of all three of those things, and they just call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay? because that kind of encompasses all of it, this whole celebration time period. It was a, a joyous time for Israel, where they were remembering what? When, when was Passover instituted? They were remembering they were their rescue from bondage, right? Their rescue from Egypt, right? And how God led them using Moses through the wilderness, and he provided for them, okay? So, um, they remembered the, how God sent that, uh, well, that uh, death angel, right, who killed the firstborn. It was the final plague on Egypt. The firstborn of everything died in all of Egypt, except in the houses of those who had sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. We'll, we'll go into this a, a lot more next week. But anyway, so um, we'll go into that. It's, it's really wonderful. So it's apropos, right, that Jesus is going to be crucified when? Passover, right? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist had said about him when he saw his cousin off in the distance coming to his baptism. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is indeed the Lamb of God. He warned the disciples about what was coming next. I, Very simply, if nothing else, a very simple application as we go through this can be this reality. 
the Lord knows everything. He, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's going to happen two days from now, five days from now, ten days from now, next week, next year, ten years from now. You can trust Him today knowing that He knows what's coming down the, the, the line, right? He knows what's, what's headed for your life, even though you and I don't necessarily know. And, and He wants you and I to trust Him in spite of the fact that we don't see to be able to trust that he does see, and that he'll, he'll provide for us daily what we need. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Then the chief priest, verse 3 says in Matthew 26, Then the chief priest, the scribes and the elders of the people, assembled at, um, assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, which is, there was this weird thing happening around the high priesthood. Annas had been the, the high priest, and then Caiaphas, and it was really weird because technically the high priest was supposed to be high priest until he died. But there were a lot of political wranglings that had happened. And so they passed it along family members and along marriage alliances and things like that. Even though it wasn't supposed to be that way, that was what was happening at the time. So um, the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, they assembled at the palace of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery or by deception and kill him, right? immediately you know something's wrong. If you're getting together thinking, how can we trick people so that we can take Jesus and kill him? <laughs> how can we do something tricky, something deceptive in order to kill him? The reason why they hadn't taken him yet was why. We, we talked about it previously. These folks are ruled. They are controlled by the fear of men. And because the, the community sees Jesus as a prophet and much of Israel is gathered to Jerusalem. Many people in Israel are gathered to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. They're afraid to arrest Jesus because just a few days before this, the people were doing what? Laying down palm branches in front of him, right? Laying down their clothes, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshiana, right? Save now. So they were terrified of what the people would do. And so they wouldn't do what they thought they needed to do because they were being ruled by the fear of man. There were other things at play, certainly. <laughs> and they said in verse 5, but they said, uh, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people, right? That sort of uh, reveals that attitude. We're not going to take him during Passover because the people will, there'll be an uprising and it will cause us political problems, right? There had already been several political uprisings that had to be squashed by Rome and some of the Roman leaders in the area knew that, including Pilate, when we get to Pilate, we'll talk about that, they understood that if there had continued to be uprisings under their rule, that the big boy leadership in Rome would send somebody else their way to fully squash it and remove those in power. There are a lot of motivations at play here. And a lot of people ruled by the fear of death and the fear of man. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, we get this little vignette now. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, which is itself shocking, <laughs> the house of a leper? <laughs> Only Jesus, right? Or like, the things I've done, I feel like they make me untouchable, which is what lepers were. They were considered untouchable, had to be exiled from the normal communities. Still, Jesus is there. <laughs> when Jesus 
was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. We have a similar record in Mark 14 of this story and uh, another record um, very, very similar in John chapter 12 that includes a few different specific details. And one of the things in the John 12 record that's interesting is it's John makes note of the fact that um, it was Judas Iscariot uh, who said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Uh, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. <laughs> so, like, he was the treasurer, right, <laughs> of the disciples. He had the money box and he was a thief. <laughs> he took it. He took money from it all the time. So he's like, wait a minute. Why did she just waste all this oil? It could have been sold, you know, and the money given to the poor or whatever. And John's like, Judas had a different motivation, you know. Uh, John uh, reveals that. In his gospel, but regardless, here's Jesus' response. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, I guess before we get to that, it's not, right? Jesus is not saying, and there is no indication here that helping the poor is something bad or that shouldn't be done. But I think one of the one of the things that maybe we're being taught here is that you and I need to be careful judging each other's motivations, it's so easy to just look at what somebody does and think that they're wrong because they didn't do what you think should be done with something. But you're not them. Okay? And you won't have to answer to God for what somebody else has done. You will have to answer for what you do. Okay? So this is a lesson I try and teach my kids all the time. Right? Like, guys... You don't have to respond badly to your brother because they did something bad to you. You're not responsible for what they've done. You're not going to be punished for something they've done wrong. But if you act badly, you will be disciplined for, for your choice. Okay. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For he, she has done a good work for me, verse 10 says. For you have the poor with you always. <sighs> You have the poor with you always. You know, we, um, humanity, it seems, at times tries to come up with ways to um, prevent this or to um, stop it from being a reality. Um, but I think certainly uh, because of greed, really no matter what political system you're involved in, because greed rules so much of the human heart, it doesn't matter. There will be poor. You have the poor with you always. Certainly the implication is there's always an opportunity for you to serve the poor, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's no lack of opportunity for you to serve people in need. Do you hear that? <laughs> okay, Guys, there is no lack of opportunity in our community for you and I to serve those in need. Let's pray this new year about how we can do that. 
in effective ways, in ways that are beneficial, in ways that demonstrate the love of God and the glory of the gospel of his kingdom. (laughs) You have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always, for in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And indeed it is, (laughs) forever recorded in the writings, (laughs) right? In several of them, okay? The main thing I want you to remember about this story is this. I mean, this is, this is, there's so many ways that people have taught this, right? This is costly worship. It costs her something, right? It's sacrificial. She could have used this for something else. She could have sold it and used the money for some other thing. All of those things are wonderful, right? She just lavished this on Jesus, and it's waste. It's a total waste of this oil. But not to her. It wasn't. And what made the difference was her heart, was her motivation, She just wanted to show love to him. And she did. And Jesus commends her for it and says, this this is going to be told as a memorial to her. So many ways that we can do (laughs) similar things, that we can worship Jesus sacrificially. Be careful about judging others and judging their motivations because you don't know it. And and I don't know how the Lord sees those things all the time. I have to be very careful about that. But Jesus commends her for this sacrificial worship. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, verse 14, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they, uh, they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave in the law of Moses. 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. It wasn't even cash on delivery. They went ahead and paid him for it. (laughs) I think of those verses that say, um, what are we willing to give in exchange for our souls? Judas just wanted a little more cash, a little more money. He already kept the money box, John tells us, and he stole from it regularly. It really is like uh, what Paul writes to Timothy when he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, right? Money is nothing. It's it's neither good nor bad, right? It's neutral. But the love of money, pursuing it, causes it to rule over you. People make choices they wouldn't make. They... They sacrifice things they wouldn't otherwise sacrifice for it. Ultimately, we are all sacrificing lots of things every day. When the way, with the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, we're all sacrificing things. The only question is, to what God, right? <laughs> Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
<laughs> now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is where he it kind of brings the whole thing together, the first of unleavened bread, right? The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread it includes Passover and then, and then first fruits after Passover and then um, unleavened bread. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house and uh, your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. This is a very simple, straightforward um, part of the story. Remember, this is a narrative. So we're getting all of these details. It's almost laid out like a play. It's, it's laying out all of the parts uh, that are happening in the story and kind of flowing along till we get to where things are headed. And again, the very simple reality is that Jesus knows. God knows everything that you need. And just like in this situation, where he's able to say to the disciples, hey, go to this certain man's house and tell him we're ready for the Passover. All they had to do was obey him. That's it. And they would have exactly what they needed. And the same thing is true for you and me. The difficulty that we have is that I have a hard time believing that. I just do. I just have a hard time believing God. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Right? Way to drop the bomb at dinner, Lord. Right? Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I really love the incredible, really shocking humility in you know, as we look at the disciples and other things that they've said, this part is kind of shocking in humility to me. They were exceedingly sorrowful, verse 22 says, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody responds by saying, Master, is it me? <laughs> Sometimes... People wrestle with doubt. I have. <laughs> I've found it hard at times in my life to trust the Lord, to believe Him, and to believe that I am sometimes who other people think I am. <clears throat> they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to Him, Lord, is it I? That is incredible introspection. Am I going to betray him? It's a scary thing to ask. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. I have. Lord, am I going to betray you? He answered and he said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It's like this. This thing is going to happen. Just don't let it be you. <laughs> okay? Like, that's the thing. Like, God has already planned this. Somebody is going to betray him. This is the thing. This is going to happen. But as you're examining your own heart, 
just don't let it be you. Okay? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That is heartbreaking to hear from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, there's a little bit of confusion here. If uh, Jesus responds by saying, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me, it seems like at that moment everybody would be like, Oh, well, we know who dipped their hand. Everybody was dipping their hand in the dish, okay? This is like a normal way of eating. You you take, and particularly at Passover, you take certain parts and you dip it in like the bitter herbs and you do that. If you've ever been a part of a traditional um, uh, Passover uh, dinner, very, very specific parts of it. But um, regardless, everybody would have been involved in, uh, in in something like this. Now, when we get to John's gospel, remember John John was there leaning on Jesus' chest at that supper. And so John gives us a little bit more detail. And it seems that it's John who actually asks who it is. And it seems that Jesus tells John who it is, but nobody else knows because John is right there next to Jesus. But it seems that nobody else knows yet. And then Judas gets up to leave, but everybody thinks that Judas is getting up to do something else that they need done because Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And then he goes, he leaves the Passover dinner. In fact, there's this incredible line where it says, after the bread entered him, Satan entered him. It is, boom. I mean, the ground just falls out, right? It's powerful. Then... Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? <laughs> you know, as the like 30 pieces of silver are, like clinking on his robe, you know. Is it I? <laughs> he said to him, you've said it. I mean, even in that, he's still saying, it's your decision. You've said it. As they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. I know that sometimes there's this question of um, transubstantiation that uh, some uh, groups of the church believe that the bread and the, the wine uh, actually become the physical body and physical blood of Jesus at the communion table or the Eucharist table as it's sometimes referred to particularly by uh, Roman Catholics. Eucharist is a word that means thanksgiving. And uh, so uh, there's some groups that believe in what's called um, uh, transubstantiation. They believe that these things no longer are grape or wine or um, bread, but they actually literally become flesh and blood. That's transubstantiation. There are other parts of the church uh, that believe something called consubstantiation that uh, suggests that Jesus' physical body and physical blood is with the wine and the bread, with them, but that they don't necessarily transform into it or change into it, but that they are with them. are two um, particular views, and there are other, certainly others who would take a um, 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 a more picturesque view rather and, and say uh, simply that these uh, things represent they represent Jesus' body and they represent his blood. Now there are other theological issues coupled with the consubstantiation or the transubstantiation thing and maybe consubstantiation. One of them is that um, there is some belief that Jesus is actually being re-sacrificed. 
he's being sacrificed again for sins at the communion table, which, of course, uh, absolutely, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, would be a blasphemous thing to say, since he was offered one time to take away sin forever. One time. Okay. There's no need um, for that. Uh, but I just want you to be aware of that reality. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Now, as you're looking at, like, people are like, well, he said, this is my body. Was he lying? Like, okay, come on, guys. <laughs> you know? He also said, I am the door. Like, does that make him physically a door? You know? No, it's not. I am the gate. He's, he's not phys- like an actual gate, right? Like, he's, it's picturesque language. It's allegory, okay? <laughs> that, that, that was something that was common in Jesus' teaching in uh, several places. So, um, anyhow, uh, take, eat, this is my body. Also, it's kind of weird because, like, his body was physically sitting right there in front of him, right? So it's like, and then he takes the bread and breaks it, and he's like, this is my body. If it was actually his physical flesh, like, that'd be real weird, right? Because, like, his, he was still there, like, sitting there in his body, which had not yet been, what, crucified, right? Had not been sacrificed yet anyways, right? So that, that was something that was coming. But anyhow, moving on. Uh, he said, take ye, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Oh, oh, you guys. This is my blood of the new covenant. Mwah. <laughs> right? Look with me at Jeremiah 31. I, I really want you guys to uh, to take a look at this with me, because... It's, it's really, really, really important to me that you do this because I want you to, and if you don't, I will have somebody with a bat to break your leg later. I'm just, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Quite allegorical. <laughs> no, I just want you to look at it with me. Um, so, so this thing called the New Covenant is something that was look, was, what Israel was looking forward to because it was promised by the prophet Jeremiah with those specific words, the New Contract or the New Covenant, the New Agreement. That sets it apart from what? The Old Agreement, right? The Old Covenant, the Old Contract, okay? So I want you to look with me at Jeremiah 31. I want you to listen and please pay very close attention because this is such wonderful it just is so wonderful it's just so wonderful if you are a sinner like me it's just really really wonderful wonderful so jeremiah 31 in fact i'm going to back up a little bit i want to pick up in verse 27 where uh, jeremiah writes this he says behold the days are coming says the lord that i will sow the house of israel and the house of judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Because they used to blame their parents for everything they were suffering. Sure glad nobody does that anymore. God says they'll say that no more, that proverb. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Oh, that's not great news. (laughs) Every man who eats the sour grapes, 
his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, verse 31, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? That was the law of Moses, right? In fact, he says that specifically, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. This is the agreement, the contract that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Where was the law written in the old covenant, the old contract? Right? Two stone tablets and then the writings of Moses, right? That's something outside of you. That's always been the problem with the attitude of saying, if, I, if I'm good enough, if I keep enough rules, if I, if I don't do this thing and I do this other thing, then I'll be good enough. The problem with it is that all of those rules are outside of you. They're external. <laughs> and in the end, they all condemn us because we can't keep them. The New Covenant says this, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Everybody in this New Covenant will, will know Him. He will write His law in our mind and in our hearts. And this last part, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There's always been an overwhelming thought to me to consider that the God who made everything and who knows everything says, your sin I will not call to mind any longer. I will not remember anymore. Because when somebody sins against you, it's real easy for you to call that to mind, isn't it? Your spouse who's hurt you, or your ex, or your parents, or your friend, or your brother, or your sister, or your neighbor, or your children, real easy to call to mind when we've been sinned against, isn't it? And to hold grudges and to harbor anger and bitterness and resentment, all those things that are contrary to what the Spirit of God would have for us. It's so easy for us. That's why I remind you regularly as, as much as I remember to that, that I think that much of our forgiveness is not simply saying, I forgive you one time and then I never have to deal with it again. You see, because I remember and that means i got to forgive you again when it comes to my mind again. <laughs> I will forgive your iniquity and your sin. I will remember no more. Washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Hey, that sounds like a really, really nice agreement, right? That sounds real, real neat, right? Not, hey, do a bunch of cool stuff, and then if you've done enough good stuff, I'll kind of overlook your sins. Nope. I will deal with them and punish them. But if you've trusted Jesus, then they've been punished in Him instead of in you.
This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Oh man, you imagine what it would have been like to sing a hymn with Jesus. Wait, we get to do that all the time, right? (laughs) He's always with us, even to the end of the age, right? (laughs) Oh, but to be in his presence where his body was to hear the voice of our Savior hey guys we have something to look forward to that's what's so vital about this idea of the presence the coming of Jesus because now we walk by faith right I haven't seen him But I believe him. I'm, I'm trying to believe him more, <laughs> to trust him more. <laughs> but the promise that we've been given is that one day we will see him. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So, quote from Zechariah 13. Um, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this ought to be a lesson for all of us. When Jesus says, you're going to do this, even if it's not something you want to (laughs) do or you think you're going to do, just just know that he knows. (laughs) He knows, (laughs) right? Uh, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. I love the, I mean, look at the reality of this. The reason why Jesus knows all of them will be made to stumble is because he knows what? The writings. He knows the scriptures, and the scripture says, Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Jesus knew that was about him and about the disciples fleeing. And because he was confident in his understanding of the word of God, of the scriptures, he knew what was going to happen. And he even told them, hey guys, you're all going to turn away from me. And their responses are lovely. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I love Peter like stepping up for himself. You know, like he's so proud. There's no way, Jesus. I'm, and and previously, and and we'll get to it in another gospel, when they were headed down to Jerusalem before this scene happens, they're like, Wait, are you sure you want to go to Jerusalem? Because like they're trying to kill you down there. You sure you want to go down to Jerusalem right now? And Jesus was like, this is where we're going. <laughs> we're going to Jerusalem. And they're like, well, their response in that moment was, well, I guess we're going to go die with him. <laughs> Just kind of matter-of-factly. But now, now, right, this is where the rubber meets the road. Now the moment is here. Are they going to die with him? No, they're going to run away. Because they're afraid. They're ruled by the fear, of the fear of death, and by the fear of these men. Jesus had previously taught them, don't be afraid of a man, of the man who can only kill your body, but fear God who can destroy both your body and soul in hell, right? <laughs> I, I was teaching this to my kids the other day, and, and as I read that to them and said that to them, their eyes got really big. I said, yeah, man, God is so much bigger than any, anything, any man, any person could ever do to you. 
<clears throat> Peter answered and said, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. There's a few more details included in some of the other gospel writers. None of them are contradictory. Rather, some of them, because they were eyewitnesses, added some details that Matthew did not add. Regardless, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then listen to the last line. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we're like, oh, Peter was so dumb and so arrogant and proud. Look at the last line right there. And so said all the disciples. Everybody said the same thing. We all said, they all said, if, even if we have to die with you, we won't deny you. And then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, I remember that's James and John are the sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, the same three who had seen him transfigured on the mount previously. They saw him begin to shine, glow, essentially, and then his, his robes begin to glow out, these same three. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Hey guys, I just think that's always the right attitude to have in prayer. And I think that I have a pretty good reason for thinking that. Because that's how Jesus prayed. <laughs> Sometimes people, I've heard people say, no, 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 if you really believe God, then you just demand what you want, or you tell God what you want, and you just believe it. I'm like, listen, Am I in the place of God to know what is best for me or best for every situation? Absolutely not. I don't know. I just don't always know. And I don't know the way that God's working in people's lives and circumstances, even through difficulty and trouble. <clears throat> so we pray, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? It always hits me because, like, it's so easy for me to sit and, like, veg out, like, watching Hulu or Netflix or something for, like, eight hours long. And, like, I'll start to pray and I'll be, like, 15 minutes in and my eyes are falling, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, if even that long, right? The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. Jesus said, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. There is this reality to communing with God in prayer that, that builds us up, that provides strength for our walk. But because it's a spiritual thing, everything in our body, everything that's natural to us, all of our flesh kind of fights against that. Even sometimes physically, right? We, like, we just want to fall asleep because we're tired <laughs> or whatever, right? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He just settles it. There's no other way for this cup, the cup of his justice. A judgment for sin. If there's no other way for it to uh, be dealt with to pass away from me unless I drink it, then your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Oh, just let, and he just left them this time. He just let them sleep. He's so nice to me. <laughs> Sometimes he just lets me sleep. He's like, oh, you fell asleep again. <laughs> and then I wake up in the morning, or at like four in the morning or something, I'm like, 
Oh, I fell asleep again. <laughs> so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. Please keep in mind, this is very, very, very early in the morning. Very early in the morning that all of this is happening. Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And if you get the, you get the, it's almost written like a play at that moment, where it's like Matthew saying, like the way that Jesus is talking, like, like imagine you're right there in that moment. Rise, let us be going. And then he says, see, look, my betrayer is at hand. And they see the crowd of people gathered with, you know, all of their stuff ready to come and take him. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Just the greatest, (laughs) the greatest act of betrayal. He greeted him with a kiss. Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Not ruled by anger, not controlled by fear, fully aware, fully confident of the plan that his father had laid out, and that was for him to die, for his life to be a sacrifice. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. It was Peter. And he cut off the servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. He cut his ear off, uh, defending Jesus, which, by the way, is not something you really ever have to do. In fact, he's going to settle that right here. (laughs) Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And I think at the very bottom issue here, I don't think this has anything to do with any statements about um, personal self-defense or anything like that. I think this is uh, the reality that the kingdom of God isn't spread with a sword. It's different than all the kingdoms of men. All the kingdoms of men spread how? By war. That is how kingdoms are spread. By conquering others. But not Jesus. And not his kingdom. Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father... And he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. That is thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you didn't seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Man, he goes back to where? In his understanding of everything that's happening to him. He always goes back to the writings. Because God has spoken through the prophets. I can't stress it enough. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, guys. Because God has spoken and is speaking to us through his, through his word. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled, as we had uh, previously noted. And those who laid hold of of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. 
But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. And John was also there. He includes those details later. Now, the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but not, but found none. I, I just love this. They're all like, we're going to find people to lie about him. And they couldn't find anybody. <laughs> they couldn't find people that would agree. Because in order for them, according to the law of Moses, to execute capital punishment, which even though they, they really didn't have the right to do under Roman authority at the time, they were, they were so inflamed at what Jesus was doing, they were going to do whatever they could to have him executed. So they had to do it on the word of two or three witnesses to whatever the event was that would then allow them to give him capital punishment. If the thing was blasphemy, that was worthy, according to the law of Moses, of capital punishment. But they had to have at least two or three witnesses to the blasphemy in order for them to legitimately condemn him. But the whole thing is illegitimate, right? Because it's a trial at night, which allegedly was not supposed to happen. And it was also... Uh, it, they also had to find false witnesses. They had to find liars, people to lie about him, right? So, uh, anyhow, uh, continuing, they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, these two, finally they found two that agreed. <laughs> Here's what he said. I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Of course, we know that he was talking about his body, right? Destroy this temple, and I will build it in three days, he had said, talking about his physical body. He would be resurrected in three days. But they took what he said, and they pulled it out of its context. I'm so glad nobody ever does that with the words of Jesus, (laughs) or with the words of the scriptures, right? They took it out of context, and they made it say what they wanted it to say to then condemn Jesus. Um... This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, (laughs) you can just hear like the indignation in the guy's voice. (laughs) Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, not controlled by fear, not controlled by anger, not feeling like he had to justify himself and explain that what they were doing was lying about him. How often do we feel like we need to defend ourselves against people who misunderstand or against false accusations and other things? And we, we act out, we lash out in anger because we feel injustice when we've been falsely accused or we feel like we've been falsely accused. But Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Verse 63, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you said it (laughs) it is as you said I say to you nevertheless I say to you hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven then the high priest tore his clothes saying he has spoken blasphemy they found two people that would agree in a lie about him and they felt like that was enough to condemn him to death so they began to question him about it his response to them, they considered to be blasphemy because now he's saying, you're going to see me, the Son of Man, coming with power and glory on the clouds of heaven. Now they're like, whoa, that's blasphemy, right? For him to say that about himself. So now they don't need the false witnesses. Now everybody in the council is now what? They're now all a witness to the blasphemy because this is the event of blasphemy. Now, What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, 
he's deserving of death. That was the penalty for blasphemy under, under Moses, under the law. Then they spat in his face. I just like to read this slowly. <laughs> they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who is the one who struck you? Other gospel writers tell us they had covered his eyes, put a blindfold on him, and they would strike him on the face and then mock him, make fun of him by saying, guess which one of us did it? Jesus, God in a human body, the Savior of the world. I know that sometimes we feel like, like we face injustice, like we are mistreated by friends or neighbors or enemies or whoever around us, but you got to understand that he, he understands that very thing. Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. When he'd gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also is with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I don't know the man. And a little later those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Because they were from the northern part of Israel, right? The Galilee, so they spoke a little bit differently than those who were in the southern part. They had a little bit different twang to their voice, right? Like you might think of somebody from Boston maybe speaking differently than uh, somebody from, say, South Georgia, right? So it was a, a kind of a dialect type issue, um, an accent issue at times. So they recognized that Peter was from up north. Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me uh, three times. So he did what only what anybody I guess only could do at that moment. He went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. I, I want to leave you with this thought because I found it to be very powerful in the way that I'm learning to relate to life and relationships the way that Jesus shows us because I, I really want to follow the way of Jesus. Only he has the words of eternal life. And there are lots of ideas out there about what we should do and how we should live and all that stuff, but I always ask the question, on whose authority, right? <laughs> all these people telling us what's right and true and you need to do this and get this person out and this is, what, this is how, why people do this or whatever. I always want to ask the question, says who? <laughs> on what authority do you make that claim, right? Especially with all our, you know, our Facebook psychology and all that stuff, you know, that we have now. So, um, so here's what I see um, Jesus doing that is so different from what I do. I'm going to try and make it as succinct as I can. When Jesus was faced when he was being hurt with false accusations, physically hurt, he was being beaten, spit in the face, 
mocked, made fun of. When he was being hurt, whatever way maybe we can define that, and there's so many ways that we can be hurt. When they questioned who he was and made fun of who he was, who he claimed to be, um, he neither ran away, nor did he fight back. Those are always, almost always, our two typical responses to pain, right? To being hurt. Physically, emotionally, in relationships, what do we do? When somebody hurts us, we either run away and we put up walls. We do this in our marriages, we do this in our families, we do this with our children and our friends. We either put up walls and run away or we fight back. Jesus, when he was being hurt, he neither ran away nor fought back. He did something remarkable. He absorbed the hurt and forgave the people who were doing it to him. That is just astronomical. That is remarkable. It is supernatural. That's what it is. Because the natural thing is to run away or to fight back to protect yourself. But he said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. And I think that for us, in a lot of ways, if we would begin to move this direction in our marriages, instead of running away from each other, instead of fighting each other, if we would learn to be patient, to be hurt, and then to forgive, to release the person who's hurt us. I think that it would be good and, and with our children and our relationships with our parents. Maybe they've hurt us, or our relationships with friends and others. See, because in the end, I, I trust that God's going to make everything right. If my confidence is that I have to make everything right, I'm going to make some real bad choices. Because <laughs> I don't see as much as he does. I don't know as much as he does. So the reality is, though, that this doesn't come naturally to me. So I need, um, I need help. And that's why uh, this morning we'll come to the table and say, Lord, would you help us? <laughs> as we remember a uh, broken body and shed blood. Um, if you guys would, um, uh, if you would,